0: Hi, I'm James Verdeer and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. On today's episode, we'll be discussing coronaviruses and other wildlife-borne illnesses, as well as disease dynamics and a number of other topics that I hope will help our listeners better understand and contextualize the current COVID-19 pandemic. My guests on the show are Dr. Mike Antolin, a professor of biology, and Dr. Dan Sockeld, who is a disease ecologist and also a previous guest on the show. Uh, Both are at Colorado State University. And before continuing, I should also mention that we urge all of our listeners to research and adhere to the appropriate public health guidance for their area. But for now, let's go to the interview. So first of all, I'd like to thank you both very much for joining me and being so generous of your time and insights during a very difficult period. You're welcome. Yeah, Thanks Thanks for having us. Okay, to get us started, uh, I was hoping you could give us a little bit of an idea, uh, just in a very general sense, of what we know about the origins of this current coronavirus that's resulted in a global pandemic. Um, you know, What what do we know and, and how much can we know at this point? So um,
1: what I've seen is a lot of uh, uh, phylogenetic analyses based on the sequences, the nucleotide sequences that have been pulled out of various um, collections that have been put online by various of my colleagues not work that I've done myself but that essentially shows that the variation in this virus essentially coalesces back to Wuhan China in early December 2019 that it um, apparently really did come from this uh, from this market in the center of that city um, and all the genetic evidence shows that it spread from there and is starting to develop some genetic identity in different places where um the epidemic is growing but it's pretty clear that that's where the first alarm of cases by late december were known and then even in early january some of the sequencing was very indicative of that and that's just held up
2: no i mean i guess another take on that though is um we don't know the source of the virus so it's There've been different reports that emerged over time. So uh, the first, I think, was suggesting it was from a snake, um, and then there were reports that it was from a pangolin. Um, and Then, right, yeah. kind of often cited our ancestor of this is some somewhere in some kind of bat population. It's probably unlikely that we will be able to get a, um, like a concrete um, identification of the source. So. Um, but the biggest, I think, the general consensus is that it's supposed to be a zoonosis, so it's emerged from some kind of animal reservoir. Um, but we don't know what it is.
0: And do we have any particular understanding of what would cause, uh, you know, a, a, something like this to spill over into a human population at any given time?
1: Well, it's it's going to be opportunity. I mean, it's you know exposure of individuals to. Um, viral particles in some way and you know in this case probably animals that were in that market and you know it's it's um I suspect these kinds of things the exposures of course happened I think fairly regularly and then the question is whether that particular pathogen is going to be adapted in a sense or pre-adapted um, to be able to infect and then to lead to person-to-person transmissions right so it's a um you know that's to me it's one of these uh, almost inevitabilities of given the numbers of people we have on the planet and how many exposures there are that this that some or one of these will you know spill over on a fairly regular basis so it's really a question of which of those exposures lead to infection and then to onward transmission
0: okay so it's more of a case in which we essentially have the conditions that allow it to happen and then you get the wrong bug in the wrong place and it's able to pass over into humans. That's right. And it,
1: and some of the details of some of the details then of, you know, how that transmission will go will influence how far it will go. Right? And so it's a um and that's perhaps the you know, one of the biggest unknown parts uh, both in the sense of how easily will this be transmitted and what it does um, you know the question of how much disease is it going to cause when it actually starts to if it starts to continue to transmit And then you know what what particular opportunities it has beyond that um, You know the original the first SARS back in 2003 I think was a fairly similar virus fairly similar kind of zoonotic origin um, But at a very different disease progression and probably different transmission in the sense that a to matter just barely pre-symptomatic individuals um, weren't transmitting. Um, the people who were really sick were the ones who were infectious to other humans, and so therefore, once it was isolated into hospitals, it was able to be stopped. Right? And that's a that that that's one thing I would say is a big contrast between the 2003 SARS and this is this is a SARS again. Um, it's not called that; it's called COVID, of course, but. Um, but it's a, a similar kind of thing. Right, yeah, no, that's true. And I, um,
2: I mean, amongst disease ecologists, we refer to it as spillover. Um, and I think just breaking it down, you, you need an animal that carries this disease um, that is able then to jump into humans. So you have to have uh, the ability for the pathogen to jump. You have to have the exposure from the normal host to a human, Um, And then for it to actually take off, you have to have humans that are susceptible and allow it to um, amplify and and transmit. Um, And and I think you're absolutely right. This is something that happens um, from time to time, um, and probably more often than we think. um, But it's the kind of rare occurrence that um, COVID-19 or the SARS from 2002 to 2004 or other things that they occasionally take off and become these major um, infectious agents for human populations. And that's when we tend to worry about them. Um, So it's happened frequently. We can think of things like HIV um, or Hantavirus or uh, Lyme disease or any of these kind of...
1: um, West
0: Nile, Zika. Should we keep going? (laughs) It, it sounds like this is the kind of thing that, you know, obviously is repeated, but typically the degree is such that it's, you know, it appears as a, a blip on our radar, you know, in terms of the, the general public in the news, and then it fades away again because it doesn't quite have the characteristics that this one does.
1: Yeah. Well, for instance, I mean, you know, as scary as Ebola was, right, um, that was, a, that was a, a, a difficult pathogen to get onto airplanes and move around because... You know people to transmit would actually be essentially um, right at the point of death right and and it's a hemorrhagic disease and so you had to be in close contact with that person at that time right? and so that that was different than this one that's probably more transmissible probably more or is transmissible in in a way that's maybe more similar to a to a cold virus right in the sense that individuals just as they're becoming symptomatic are you know um, aerosolizing this thing, um, and aren't 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 prevented or you know debilitated in such a way that they can't move. And so this one moved because people were able to get on airplanes and go all around the world right, while carrying this virus and being infectious, right? So that's the you know that's that's a, a really key difference, even for for what happened with the previous SARS, right? Was that some individuals were able to do that, but they were I would suspect relatively not infectious until later on in that sort of disease etiology, right of when of when they became they only became infectious later on when they became debilitated for instance Right? so and that's a that's a big big difference
2: and i think um i think also it's one of these things we never know what the course of the outbreak is going to look like so i mean i teach a class in disease ecology and each year i teach it there is some emerging disease that is taking up um, media attention, um, and often these things do tend to fade or they become accepted as the norm. So, um, you know, uh, Zika was one that it was massive for the year that it took that big outbreak and uh, hit Brazil, travelled to the states, um, but subsequently it didn't seem to have taken off or maintained itself um, as much as people feared, um, and that allows it to disappear from the radar and then wait for the next candidate to be the and um, emerging
0: pandemic right. And, and I wonder then, you know, is there a way that, that this can ever be seen coming? You know we obviously we hear about them when they spill over, um, and they, they typically dominate our news cycles for a relatively brief time. This one obviously will for much longer than that. Um, but is there is there a way that we can you know know what's hiding out in these reservoir species uh, in advance of spillover? Um, So that, you know, perhaps we could have a better response prepared than we have for this.
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's, you know, essentially what you're talking about is disease surveillance. And can we actually keep track of what's potentially out there? Um, And that's a very um, difficult thing to, first of all, design well in the beginning, and second of all, maintained over long periods of time. I mean, imagine what you're actually trying to do is you're trying to take all of nature and somehow sample it, and perhaps store samples in such a way that you're able then to determine what what existed in those um, at that time, or or potentially would be into the future. Um, you know, if you just think about you know SARS itself or these coronaviruses, was you know in two thousand and three it was actually considered fairly innovative that it was able to be identified as quickly as it was because of the change in molecular biological techniques and dna sequencing and rna sequencing that allowed identity of this virus as that that quickly right and and now of course um we have the ability to detect them as well but the thing is is you know where would you expect to go looking for them right is it bats is it pangolins is it snakes is it You know which what what is it is it rodents Um, and then you know just think of the um, think of the issues associated with just storing samples Um, let's say you go out and you send someone out on an expedition to collect things and that needs to be stored someplace in such a way that would then be tested in such a way that would be predictive right and if you think about you know SARS from 2003 to to this now 17 years later um, know uh, would we have samples from that time that would help us identify this coming now and um, yeah, you know, that's it's a it's not necessarily a lack of um, desire to do so it's a I think it's a lack potentially of you know repeatable targets that would tell us which ones which ones are coming yeah I think it's uh, you know the benefits of hindsight are amazing Um
2: yeah. that catalog of diversity for the potential hosts and for potential viruses, plus prions and bacteria and, and other kind of parasites, is just um, really hard to keep uh, a handle on. Um, and I, I mean, it's one of those funny things. Of uh, bats have like attracted a huge amount of attention um, and, and it's, um, notoriety now for being the, the reservoir host for the next viral pandemic and the next viral species of threat. Um, and yet, the last coronavirus is is the reservoir is for MERS Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome um, is camels. So you couldn't almost, you couldn't get further from a bat um, if you tried. So it's that it's very difficult to judge what is going to be um, the next
1: host. Um, yeah, I, 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 and, and that's them. not and that's not to say that in places where you know. Um, Pathogens and diseases recur that you have no hope of being able to detect when when the the risk and the danger goes up um, Plague in the western United States is a, is a is a a pretty good example That's the that's the system that Dan and I started working on together um, the two of us back in Right well right around 2004 or so um, And so plague is in wild rodent populations ground-dwelling rodents like prairie dogs and things like that here in the west and and um, it's what I call the uh, um, the Goldilocks of pathogenic bacteria. It lives in the relatively dry parts of the world like this, but in relatively wet years um, is more prevalent. Right? And so we know to look more so in relatively wet years um, for plague outbreaks, but we also have sentinels in the sense of um, when prairie dogs start to die and their, and their fleas um, become infected, then we know that the risk goes up. And I know Dan has some example of or some um, experience, similarly of of plague surveillance in in state parks in California, <laughs> national and state parks in California, right, Dan? Yeah, but I thought you were going to talk about something else. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's um, yeah, predicting it is hard.
2: Um, there's the kind of general rules of that it's perturbance or of natural systems or it's some kind of uh, climate or weather um, patterns. Um, but often, yeah. as not, I think it's sometimes they don't turn up, and so you get. Um, yeah.
1: it, it's that uncertainty that is is hard to yeah. grapple with. Yeah, and partly I'm I'm trying to contrast that. You know, we have, we have the ability to to you know detect uh, risk of of some pathogens. It's not that we're completely without any tools whatsoever, but these are, you know, COVID-19 is novel. it it, it it's not one that presumably has been in humans at all before. Right? And that's the part that's difficult to predict, right? And to um, surveil and be completely prepared for, because which one would be next would be, you know, could be um, quite variable. You know, um, so it's a uh, how how to, how to be ready for the next one. I'm sure is something we're going to spend a lot of time talking about. Um, but I, there's really no simple answer to say we could cover the world and discover what's there and protect ourselves without question.
0: So the case is more or less that it's challenging enough to look for a known pathogen that has uh, known dynamics and recurs at known intervals. But when you're looking for something that you don't even know uh, what it might be like, uh, it becomes all the more challenging, if not impossible.
1: Pretty close to that, I would say. I mean, you know, it's actually since uh, I was trying to think how, I mean, just and this is pure off the back of an envelope, you know, not having thought this through very carefully, really. Um, is you know how how could you have been prepared for let's say tests of, or that sort of thing that would allow you to be ready for this? And um, you know the, um, you know, you sort of think of this as a as a recipe. What would what would a kit look like that would have general ingredients for which then you would at, be able to add, for instance, and this may be PCR primers that would specifically allow you to identify this one once you once you got an idea of what it was and be able to quickly deploy that because, the you know, the everything in the box except for that last ingredient is ready to go. Um, and that might be, you know, if we know that there are any viruses and we know they are... Among certain groups, and these are the kinds of things that are more likely. We may be able to get to that point of having things that are more easily and more quickly spun up um, to be able to scale up to the size that we need now. And but um, I, I suspect that's going to be a big area of research um, <laughs> here in the future, in the near future, as we as we kind of move forward. Um, no, I think that was brilliantly put,
2: Jim. It's um, it's one of the things. That, it's Louis Pasteur. It's a chance favours the prepared mind. I think. Mean, see, I kind of find the disheartening fact of this outbreak is that it's. This is not a kind of a new occurrence, although the scale of it certainly is. But you know, if you, we talked through those examples earlier of Zika and chikungunya and swine flu, and these things are not. Um, they they are happening, and it requires health infrastructure to deal with it, um, and it. Seems to have been this kind of compartmentalization that uh, oh it was just a, it's just a thing happening in China, well now it's just a thing happening in China and some of the Southeast Asian countries and now it's just those plus Italy and oh look it's in Seattle, um, that kind of I think the response uh, needs to be changed that you have to be more proactive earlier and not wait for it to arrive on on your own borders before you actually seem to do something this serious um, and takes it into account. And I know it's a classic trade-off between being prepared and, and uh, taking action, but then what if that were action were not merited? Um, but we we're certainly watching um, it, the pendulum swing during this occasion.
0: Yeah. It seems like the astounding downside risk would be, uh, you know, some cause for, you uh... More proactivity, at least in the future.
1: Yeah, that's you know what what would that look like in the sense that 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 would make sense. Like you know, for instance, um, when there's there's a, a network in the United States funded by the National Science Foundation called the National Ecological Observatory Network, which which is meant to make you know atmospheric measurements and ecosystem scale measurements of of uh, of all kinds of ecological parameters. Um, at one point um, it was considered that maybe the sites where those are should also do disease surveillance right essentially just collect rodents and mosquitoes and ticks and things like this and put samples in freezers and 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 you know um, store them for the future to 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 be able to do something with those samples Um, and and I I'm pretty sure that part of the reason this this ended up changing was the first of all you know the individual players in different places are different but second of all it just became this thing of you know are we going to fill frozen warehouses full of samples and then maintain them for what cost for how long Right, and those those become those become you know really practical issues in the sense of other pressing needs that arise in the meantime right so the you know pro- part of the problem with surveillance is that is that it, it it's hard to spend resources on it in a time when apparently nothing's happening, right? Um, and so it's a, the preparedness side of this um, is is a, and maybe this will be finally the lesson that tells us that we should just be much more prepared. I mean, we certainly, we could tick off 10, 12 examples here, probably just in the last 20 years of things that have emerged, probably 30 years for sure. There must be at least a dozen in the last 30 years. Um, that have emerged large enough to have, you know, influenced um, at least some part of the world's population. And so um, what that preparedness is going to look like um, in terms of actual physical infrastructure is, is going to be a very interesting problem to try to solve.
0: Okay, and I'm curious, in looking back at those past um, illnesses, you know obviously there are any number of of personal and regional tragedies associated with them but in terms of you know the the global pandemic scale is it f- more accurate to say that we have been comparatively lucky with them or extraordinarily unlucky with the current pandemic it's it's a um
1: well pestilence has been you know part of the human condition probably as long as we have history um recorded about pestilence and so it's you know it is part of the human condition and so um but perhaps one of the things that may have changed how we perceive it is that we've been fairly successful with public health campaigns and vaccination and things like that with lowering disease burden dramatically and so the perceived risk of disease like this is perhaps changed dramatically um I'm not sure that, you know, was, was 1918 really that long ago? Because that was, you know, influenza, which was a novel strain of influenza to a pretty much, you know, immune-naive world. That, you know, the death toll was probably close to $50 million for that one. And that might be the real parallel to this, of where the world was connected enough that a, that a novel virus, um, mind you, flu was around before for humans, but this was novel, in the sense of it's of the of who it infected, um, spread around the world very quickly and caused a very large death toll. Right? And so lucky unlucky, I I think there's a um, a spectrum of these and we're only gonna hit that extreme every once in a while, I guess is the you know, as much as the these I think these occurrences are much more common than we um, Maybe are willing to perceive, and of course the really big ones, um, you know, have actually have actually uh, happened more recently than um, than we seem to remember, right?
0: Yeah, it seems as though there's an element at which you know human psychology is poorly matched for this challenge,
1: or or our resilience is matched for the challenge of having had this as part of our history and recovering from it and then moving on. Right. That as well. <laughs> right.
0: And that's, uh, you know, um,
1: yeah, that's right. I, I think it's, a, uh, you know, it's, it's, I, I, you know, I try to, I try to remind people, for instance, that at my age and my <laughs> advanced age, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to wear uh, you know, when smallpox vaccines first showed up and, um, polio vaccines first showed up and, Measles vaccines first showed up, and the difference in what my school was like in the you know, essentially starting in the mid 60s, in the sense of you know, how we thought about measles, mumps, rebel, and all these things that would just move their way through, versus now, most everyone just doesn't even think about those anymore, right? And you know, I knew people who were actually affected by polio, um, they were you know kids that were maybe five to ten years older than I was and you know now we you know no one remembers what the March of Dimes was really right Um, and that sort of thing so it's yeah we we do tend to we do tend to forget these and I think that's why this one maybe is such a giant shock I actually don't think a century ago for the 1918 flu is is that long ago for it to have faded from memory as much as it had yeah um, just to answer both those questions I mean I think the luck part
2: comes in that this is rare enough to be a shock. Um, Like Mike was just saying, um, public health and the advantage of sanitation and comfortable affluent lifestyles means that these things are the exception and the the odd event as opposed to something that we've lived through as a population. Um, If you think going back you know like uh, plague and the Black Death and the, the various other pandemics of plague or smallpox or um, measles, all these things were major killers um, that we've managed to just um, see their influence wane um, and I think now, watching these I- events now, it's a combination of many things of uh, huge population densities of humans as a susceptible host for something to jump into and local changes in land use and landscape and climate that are uh, disrupting um, otherwise natural cycles and um, and that we are just part of a natural world and we tend to either forget
1: or willingly ignore that, that fact. yeah I think that the probably the biggest change though that allows these emergences and so for instance, I was talking to a, a class I'm teaching which is on on evolutionary medicine and we we're comparing the we spent a little bit of time before spring break comparing the 1918 flu to this one, to this outbreak. And uh, it's interesting, this, you know, the students themselves turned around and said, yeah, but in 1918, right, um, how could that, you know, there weren't airplanes yet, so how could that have happened? And I think, the you know, by 1918, there was shipping all around the world, regular enough to where, you know, almost equal you know but as a proportion of the population probably equal numbers of people were moving they were just moving by trains and ships rather than airplanes and so the the you know probably the parallel with the 1918 flu is that the world was connected in a way that it really hadn't been before and that's that that's the one that triggered it and that's the if there is one big change it's that we are connected in a sense well we're we're connected in a way that 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 is very different than our, of course, our whole human history, right? And um, and that's it's that connectivity that essentially has left us unlucky for something like this one that's transmissible the way it is to be able to quickly spread, right? And it's a, um, you know, that that's probably going to be one of the big lessons as well is, you know, recognizing that um, recognizing that with this connectivity, if something gets going, we have to respond more quickly. So, and to go back just 20 years from then, actually, um,
2: and Mike and I both worked on the plague, but uh, I was sending an email to someone and not realizing that I was writing it, that I was like, well, we're talking about a a disease agent that's originated in Central Asia, moved to Europe and the States. I was like, well, that's absolutely the the pattern of plague around the turn of the uh, 20th century. Um, So these things do just move, lots of parallels when one starts to think about it.
0: Yeah, and speaking of one of those parallels, uh, one thing I was wondering is I was rereading your two thousand sixteen article, which was mostly focused on um, prairie dogs. You know, are the network effects among you know uh, those communities is is it reflected at all or similar in any way to you know the same kind of network and spread effects that we see uh, among pathogens within human populations?
1: I'll let Dan answer that one. He's, he's worked <laughs> on that. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I think
2: that parallels are absolutely... Um, so the, what we looked at with prairie dogs as a model almost for disease spread amongst human populations is that the tiny nick groups, the little family groups of prairie dogs, um, seem to become affected as a unit, and so one will bring in the infection and they'll all die shortly thereafter. Um, and one of the models that we developed was that if you have some kind of um, alternate host that does the connecting and you allow disease to take off. like you, you get the, the full-fledged wildfire as opposed to a small smoldering. I and mean, yeah. I think that's uh, what Mike was just saying and what you're alluding to is that um, the connections now that we have between um, you know I don't know how many people have heard about Wuhan uh, three months ago, but obviously we are tightly connected and, and people are moving all over. Um, and a lot of the, what we're watching is kind of, you know, those maps from Johns Hopkins, the brilliance of looking like a movie, we're watching the spread from country to country or state to state. Um, I think it's already happened. And what, all we're doing is trying to play catch up with surveillance data to say, oh, we've confirmed the cases. But it's not the first cases that we're seeing. We're just beginning to see mm-hmm. these, these disparate wildfires
1: yeah that that was one of our goals in studying prairie dogs in the first place was that was that because of the social biology and gathering into you know essentially these colonies these towns um, creates this you know the the, the spatial spatial network and then also the the spatial isolation pretty partic- perhaps of some towns from others that you know to, to try to Understand how this kind of epidemiology works that and, uh, and so I think there's there really is a parallel and of course That's what we're trying to do now, right is we're trying to essentially You know Become socially isolated or socially distanced or physically distanced at this at this time So that you know, it's not only that we're trying to prevent ourselves from getting infected But that so those who are infected, you know pass through that without without transmitting Right? And so it's it's from both sides. It's the and, and you know, there's a there's a parallel to Prairie dogs certainly in terms of our, our understanding of the spatial biology of how plague outbreaks moves away across the grasslands have a, you know, really do follow those kinds of patterns and, and uh, of spatial isolation and then family groups and connectivity and, and back and forth and the modulating of how quickly and, and how far each of these individual outbreaks occur in different years.
0: You know, kind of following from those dynamics and the similarities potentially, if you were charged with, uh, you know, potentially uh, studying the types of things that might help prevent this type of outbreak in the future or hasten the response to it, um, and given, it, you know, let's just say an extraordinarily large budget because this is the sort of uh, situation in which, you know, large amounts of money are spent, um, what kinds of things would you look at? What sort of questions would you be most interested in answering?
1: Well, I'll go back. I, I would test, 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 test <laughs> to begin with. Um, like, for instance, like I like when we started, I said that we have a you know 10% positive rate amongst those who are tested, but we're also only testing those that are showing any kind of disease symptoms, right? Of whether it's this or some of the colds and coughs that are going around, or the flu that's going around. And so we don't actually know, first of all, how many um, infected individuals there really are. We don't know what the quote-unquote force of infection is right how many people of different ages are actually are actually infected and and potentially transmitting the the second thing we really need to know is we need to know how many people were you know um, infected and then you know perhaps uh, built an immune response and therefore are now you know um, aren't going to be susceptible anymore because you know, part of the idea of this flattening the flattening the wave, flattening the curve right, is that we're slowing things down, but there's still going to be a large number of potentially susceptible um, people in our population still waiting for a, for a second wave of infection. You know, what's going to if this thing's really seasonal, for instance, and it stops for the summer, what's going to be the what what's going to be the um, probability of a second outbreak next year? Right? how many are we actually going to have enough immunity in this population um, to actually get there so so we really need to know pretty much exactly where everybody is in the in sense of who's infected and who's not um, and, the, and the genetic data that are coming in are, are quite good um, what I'll just toss it back to Dan what he would um,
2: I guess so. I, I mean, you can take this with a pinch of salt because this is almost um, this is the research element that I love. So I have a natural tendency to want it to be done, and I think it's that looking at that interface between ecology and epidemiology. Um, that we are now in the like absolutely should be this kind of epi, uh, epidemiology study now of like trying to work out for how long are incubation periods and when are the latent periods and when do become people become infectious relevant to symptoms and what is that going to do in human networks and social distancing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that's really important. And But we're, we alluded to this earlier, that we don't know how this virus jumped from animal X into people um, and from what that animal was. And it's, um, if you, one goes back, the narrative for the uh, SARS outbreak was that it was civic cats, that somehow were infected by bats. Um, But it was the civic cats that were out because this kind of bridge host that allowed people to become infected. But if you look back with this kind of new look now, that we're like, oh, can we learn something from 2002, 2003 that would help us now? And actually the narrative isn't as strong as we think it is. There are these nice um, elements that, yes, the SARS coronavirus was related to one that was found in bats. Um, But we don't know any of these mechanisms, and it seems like there's this gap for understanding um, the ecological component of how did it get from a bat to a civic cat in the first place, if that's even um, the transmission mechanism that transpired. Um, And again, we're going to be left wondering what happened here for the um, COVID-19 outbreak, um, but it would be wonderful to try and kind of hit that um, interface and try and work out how it's happening and maybe that would be an element of uh, being able to control and understand and prevent future
1: outbreaks. Yeah, yeah. and you know, mostly we've been answering the question from the epidemiological side of what, you know, what data we would want to know from that sort of thing. We haven't talked about the biomedical side of this at all, um, which would be, you know, or additional public health um, interventions, of course, is what what's it going to take to produce a vaccine for this? And if we're talking about vaccination or if we're talking about previous infection, one of the things I'd love to know right now for instance would be um, Of those individuals who were infected by the SARS virus 17 years ago, do any of them have any immunity to this one? Mm -hmm. Um, And would immunity to this actually spur immunity to the next Coronavirus that might come along that's a which is a very that's a very a medical kind of issue the other one is like a lot of viruses um, the um, the disease progression and severity of disease varies among individuals hugely and getting an understanding of what how that actually comes about I mean certainly the age effects are maybe understandable in the sense of the loss of immune function and and other things but but even among you know indi- individual, even among those individuals, among everyone, and you know, virtually all of these viruses have this feature. Um, Hanta virus has this, and West Nile virus has this, of some individuals who just have massive reactions to these things, perhaps overreactions, and some who have very mild symptoms or no symptoms at all, even with infection. And what and what the, what's the what's the the basis of, of those kinds of issues in the sense of trying to understand how bad the disease would be from one of these right and um it does those those are you know and it, it certainly goes back then to the things that dan was asking of you know how long does it take a person to become infectious or how long does it take for the onset of symptoms and how long is this person infectious and how long are they shedding virus and when they do shed virus is it how long is it lasting on surfaces that they are around and all those, all those basic questions that we just don't have any answers to right at the moment. And
2: if I would just jump in one last thing because what Mike was saying has generated another thought. Um, and you mentioned that this was an unlimited budget, <laughs> James. Yeah. But, but I think, um, so one of the things that seems to be that it's this uh, this horrific kind of, um, I'll say this articulately, but where the markets meet vaccines and public health and mean and sometimes they don't seem to so if one looks back at SARS from 2003 the the reason it was stamped out was classic epidemiology methods of isolation and yeah. and slow down the change of transmission and that's the same tool that we are trying to adopt now um but one can then look forward a few more years and we have um, MERS the middle eastern respiratory syndrome also a coronavirus also affecting people Um, But it seems that that's in a disparate population that is, you know, that's a problem for the Middle East as opposed to anybody else. But if you look now, you say, well, we have two coronaviruses that we know are infectious from zoonotic sources and have um, horrible effects upon um, people who are infected. So shouldn't we be investing in a vaccine research program to look at how can we combat coronaviruses? And maybe that's going on, and maybe, I mean, I like to spend my time chasing prairie dogs, but hmm. I don't know. But it seems like that would be one of the things that we should be looking at, of candidates of disease, um, or can, like virus groups that cause diseases, and we get some kind of um, momentum into establishing vaccines that might be able to be adopted in the case of the next one. Yeah. And, you know, and one looks now and goes, well, of course, we should have worked on a coronavirus vaccine. But um, it seems to lose the focus once the outbreak um, loses its momentum. Um,
0: right. The very last question, uh, if you have just a moment for it, is I was curious what it's like to be in your line of work uh, right now. Um, you know, understanding that we're in, I would imagine, the earlier stages of this um, pandemic, at least in the United States. Um, you know, h- how has it been?
1: Um, for me, I, I'm not directly involved in any way, I mean, other than um, our planning that we're doing here at the university for, you know, for how to, how to try to shut things down and keep people safe. Um, but in my classes and things like that, and certainly among colleagues, um, one of the things I've found myself answering a lot is this question of why is everybody getting so excited this is just like the flu, and why this isn't just like the flu, um, is... is you know just trying to help people understand that these that, that the things we need to do to stop this are things we really need to do to stop this because it's not it's not something we've seen recently um, and there's there's no there's no parallel in our lifetimes for what's what's actually happening right now at the scale and so for me it's mostly been trying to um, talk to people in my general community who are actually very much questioning whether we should be doing what we're doing. I don't, I
2: don't know how to
1: answer that question. I feel like... Um, yes, I work
2: on zoonoses and I look at diseases that are transmitted from wildlife to human populations and I study the impacts on, of epidemiology and this event in one way makes me feel quite useless. Hmm. Um, that I'm far away, that what I do is too much towards the ecology animal Um, end of the spectrum um, and what does one have to offer for this, Um, especially when one thinks about friends and family whatever who actually work in healthcare professions that are frontline and dealing with these things, these like really horrific questions of do you go into work and um, devote yourself to the public health or do you worry that you will bring agents of disease back to your home? So I think those questions are really big um, and I feel quite irrelevant to them. But at the same time, slowly it's dawning on me that um, I think with you know, having worked on this topic for 20 years, that one starts to think of questions that are a little um, seemingly tangential, but slowly begin to um, gain importance attraction in my mind of going back to work out like, what should we really be looking for as a host and what should we be thinking about in terms of um, looking at the patterns that keep causing these uh, recurrent epidemics. And so um, I think it's it's hard. I mean, I do at least enjoy the fact that I've had 20 years to give some background of, of not just uh, someone was saying that every Facebook user was a, um, an expert in congressional law four weeks ago and now it's they're all like, outbreak experts. Um, there is that ability to look at things with a broader perspective, but I um, yeah, I, think I would like to be able to be doing more.
1: Yeah, a little bit of the parallel is when there are prairie dog outbreaks here in Colorado and things like um you know, natural areas are shut down and that sort of thing. I I've, I've been interviewed several times on the radio, etc., to talk about these things. And uh, you know, without trying to scare the heck out of everybody to say, you know, for plague here in Colorado, oh my goodness, you know, don't go out of your house now. Um, what I try to talk about is you know awareness of your circumstances relative to your risk of being infected right and, and which is actually fairly low for plague really when it comes down to it. And as deadly as that is it's actually hard to get but um but that's that's to me uh, you know what I would turn around and say is I, I think complacency in the face of emerging disease is not something we can afford to do you know if we're if we're going to be a um, uh, savvy Members of our society, then I think this is something that we have to be aware that is going to continue that has occurred and will continue to occur right. and and that um, We've had the hiatus maybe for you know in the since the antibiotic and Vaccination ages knocked a lot of things back. It hasn't eliminated them and um, and so therefore uh, I would just say awareness. We just need to be, we, we we can't relax on this one. And I think this is what really shows this.
0: Absolutely. I think that's a, a good note to leave it on. Uh, thank you both very much for joining me and for your time. And I, I wish you and yours the best of health.
1: Yeah, same to you. Best wishes. It's a it's a crazy time. It'll be interesting to see whether we're changed by this when it's over. Yeah. Thank you, James. Yeah. Thank you, James.
0: Yeah.